podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Reuters Chief Revenue Officer Eric Danitz about, well, I imagine about a bunch of different things, but the thing I'm you know, curious to hear about is revenue chief of any publisher these days, I guess one of the big questions is, how's their ad business doing? How are things going for Reuters? He says pretty well. Uh, it's still a little early to tell whether or not there's going to be a remarkable bounce back um, in the back half of this year and in 2024. But he did say that um, RFP volume and, uh, you know, the pipeline, I think he calls it, of deals is a little bit more robust right now than it was this time last year. So optimism is definitely um, the word I would use to describe his thoughts for how revenue is going. But he does kind of caveat that with the fact that budgets can disappear in the blink of an eye um, if the economy takes a turn. That said, um, it is you know, going to be a presidential election year. And that typically means pretty solid things for um, ad dollars. Um, And while Reuters has kind of like a particular approach to how um, they're going to be handling political ad dollars, um, he did say it's still, you know, a big opportunity for end of this year, coming year. There are some positives uh, and there's also some hesitancy still. For sure. Right. That makes sense. And so you recently reported on like the advertiser categories that are up and, you know, those that are down at the moment. What are the categories that are spending or not spending for Reuters these days? Well, interestingly, Reuters, Eric said that it was uh, finance is a big category. Um, And I think that is a very unique position um, compared to the rest of the publishing industry. Finance has been a very troubled category since the Silicon Valley bank collapse at the beginning of the year, which can you believe that was still this year? Um, But that category has been very soft for a lot of publishers I've spoken with. A lot of CROs are still saying it's um, quite soft um, with some anticipation that it'll come back next year. But for Reuters, because they have more of a professional audience, an audience that would likely be looking at financial institutions for you know, how they do their job, how they complete their M&A deals or what have you, he said that there has been a professional lens to the finance category that has performed fairly well for them in terms of ad revenue. And so it's a category that's surprisingly strong for them. And a lot of other publishers have not been able to say the same. Interesting. That sounds like an interesting conversation. So I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Kevin. We can talk about quite a number of things because I feel like the state of the news uh, media business is very exciting right now. Media in general has been very exciting for the past few years, um, but you overseeing revenue for Reuters, I feel like there are a lot of different areas that we can get into in this conversation. Um, But I think the first one I want to start off with is Something I've reported on for the past few months and I've spoken to members of your teams about as well. Um, So I think like brand safety around major news events is something that is very much top of mind. How those brand safety concerns then trickle down and impact things like advertising revenue and, you know, brand partnerships and things like that. And just how 
news publishers, major news publishers are handling the impact of these kind of the volatile news cycle on overall revenue. I think that's a good place to jump into. And then maybe from there we can get into like politics and presidential election because there's a lot to go over in this episode. But um, I guess to kick it off, curious if you could talk about, you know, the past few years, what this kind of like volatile news cycle and the resulting brand safety concerns from advertisers, what that's really done to programmatic advertising revenue and how Reuters has kind of um, worked to handle that volatility when it comes to maintaining a stable business? That's a very good question. It's one that we speak to literally daily. Uh, In addition to my duties of being head of revenue here, I'm also on the board of the IAB. And it's something that we talk about there as well because it's affecting Reuters and all news organizations, we put tremendous effort, uh, investment, and human capital towards capturing stories around the world and delivering those stories. And when we deliver those stories on our dot-com platforms and on our various platforms, not being able to monetize due to aspects of what is considered brand safety is, is a huge concern for us because we feel it's very important to reach these audiences that we reach. I can speak to Reuters alone. We're reaching over 50 million people a month, unique visitors to the site. And when they come to us, and they come to us in mass when these uh, events happen, they come because they know we're reporting, we're doing it fast, we're doing it accurately, and it's critically important. When Double Verify IAS and other uh, ad tech are blocking the ability for us to monetize that with brands that we feel are appropriate to be on these pages, it does create a tremendous problem for us. And it is an ongoing challenge. We speak to those platforms, so whether it's Double Verify IAS or others who we work with, uh, and we're trying to work through that. The way that they're blocking uh, our content um, is not only a problem for our monetization, which is obviously my responsibility here, but it's also a problem for the purpose for which we're creating that content, which is to reach individuals. We use that monetization in order to resource. Um, the. We have over 2,500 editors around the world Um, There's a tremendous amount of cost that comes into doing that. And so it is something we talk about regularly. It is a major focus for us. And so we're speaking to brands, we're speaking to ad tech, and we're certainly speaking to the broader ecosystem that we operate in and how can we relieve that tension that exists. Yeah, to like add a little bit of context for listeners who might not be aware of how much of an impact like blocking around brand safety concerns can cause on like revenue. I think going back to some of the reporting I did earlier this year, there was a stat like a 30% decrease in like CPMs on content marked as um, not brand safe. Um, Is that kind of similar to what you see when it comes to those filters going up and brands pulling dollars? Absolutely. Yeah. And depending on the volume and what the topic may be, it can be greater than 30%, right? The monetization could be heavily affected based on the topic itself and the keywords that are associated and those that are blocked based on how we're reporting and what we're reporting against. COVID's a perfect example. Through COVID, there was a tremendous amount of blocking that was happening in terms of our ability to monetize the content we were creating. And yet that content wasn't salacious. It wasn't negative. If anything, it was informative. Mm-hmm. And it was critically informative to our end users. And so we were looking very closely at that and doing everything we can in terms of making sure that those block lists were valid in terms of what they were trying to accomplish in, in being set up that way and, and making sure that the ad tech in place was that of a modern ad tech stack and not one that is antiquated and 
again, causing a lot of problems which shouldn't exist, both for the user and for us. Right. And I think, um, you know, a recent example that I reported on was the Maui wildfires. And there was one ad tech firm who was trying to or was offering advertisers the ability to block um you know, their ads showing up against that coverage. And they were saying that the contextual approach to blocking is meant to replace that rudimentary, like, you know, block list strategy, which is very blunt. um, And I think causes a lot of issues. They were arguing that the contextual nature of it is more about keeping ads, advertising like a beach vacation out of coverage of the Maui wildfires. That all to say, I think that's a very ideal approach. I'm. They were saying like the money is meant to go back to that same news publisher and other content. But curious, like from your perspective, if the money really does end up back in the pocket of a, a news publisher, because my gut instinct is that this wouldn't be an issue if it actually ended up back, you know, with the initial news publisher. Yeah, your gut, yeah, your gut instinct's right. I think theoretically that's something that can be stated, but from an actual factual standpoint, that money is not being redirected into that same publisher, that same news publisher that is reporting about the Maui fires, which, again, is critical information for people on the ground there or those who are related or those who want that information because it's critical to their life or other lives of people who they love and care for, uh, businesses, et cetera. So, Yes, this is this is a problem that that does exist. I will say when you're looking at it from a different angle, from a contextual angle, we are open to having that dialogue. You used an example of, you know, a Maui vacation and the appropriateness of that. I would argue, I'm very candid, that doesn't necessarily have contextual alignment to what's happening there. I wouldn't necessarily want to run that there in the same way mm-hmm. that I've been in the publishing business for many years. You don't want to have a message aligned that doesn't have contextual relevance or even is kind of conflicting in many ways to what's happening there. However, that's not the broader case here, right? In many cases, what you're going to present to an audience does have context. It is trying to reach a certain audience. And what we see in mass when we're reporting about a certain incident or something that's happening around the world, many folks are coming to us first because they know we're reporting on an objective level. We're known for that. That is our ethos. We're also doing it very quickly. And so being able to reach that audience in mass in the right context, with the right message, when they're satiating themselves with news and information that's important to them, does have context. And in many cases, that is being blocked. Right, right. And so because there is this known issue, it's an ongoing problem with monetizing news content, is there an effort to move away from like programmatic advertising particularly from an open marketplace perspective in favor of more direct deals? Like, is that the way to solve the problem? Or do you think that there is better tools that could be used to improve programmatic spending on news? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a combination of both. So yes, we most certainly go directly to brands and we talk about Reuters. We talk a lot about our audience and we talk about how we can through direct buys, be very specific in terms of where we're positioning and the contextual relevance of where we're positioning. Um, That being said, when you are a news publisher, and for instance, we have a world section where you're going to see most of the news that breaks, it can be very difficult to place direct brand ads there, given what we just talked about, whether it's a a Maui vacation versus a tragedy there. Um, So we want to be able to backfill that with programmatic ads, right? Not programmatic guaranteed per se, but some open market programmatic that is filtered. Um, 
what we want to do is have a better process. And I mentioned the process itself and the technology needs to be updated. And it really needs to be more specific in terms of what's being blocked versus just a keyword. Um, so it needs to be more sophisticated. And I have a feeling as we go through this conversation, we'll talk about AI as well. The, the reality is we need to really apply some of the technology that we're talking about against these key areas because it has a huge impact on the publishers. It has a huge impact as a result on our ability to, to cover all the stories we want to cover. And that has a huge impact on the end user at the end of the day. So, um, yes, that's a good question. And the answer is actually a matter of both where we're selling direct and we need to have a better understanding of the technology that's being used in the open market. And I guess you know, checking in on how the year has been pacing so far from a revenue perspective, like how has advertising, the ad market changed in the past, you know, six months? If we had this conversation a year ago, I feel like it was really starting to kind of nosedive for a lot of publishers. Um, I've heard that it's starting to come back a little bit more, um, Curious what your yeah, thoughts are. Yeah, no, that's a it's a good question. I'll speak in the macro, obviously, because I, I can't speak directly to our revenue being a public company, and we don't speak you know directly to our numbers. But I can speak in the macro, in that the first part of this year was certainly challenging. And if you were to speak to my peers, and I have a lot of those conversations, we did see the macroeconomic advertising environment shrink, right? And it's been challenging, and we've had to get creative. I would say that there. I'll use the term light at the end of the tunnel. The second half of the year is looking brighter. Um, whether that will actually become uh, fact in the case is to be determined, but we are seeing brands uh, more optimistic. And then with that optimism comes additional spending. And so uh, we have optimism that the second half of the year will be stronger than the first. Are there any specific categories that are standing out as, um, you know, performing well, or maybe spending a little bit more than, yeah, you know? Yeah, I would say... I would say for us, you know, we have endemic categories, which are finance, um, consulting. And so we're seeing additional efforts there. And, and that is also predicated on the broader markets, right? You're seeing interest rates rise. You're seeing a lot of stories around what's happening uh, in economies, not only here in the United States, where I sit here with you, but also elsewhere around the world where we're covering. And so that has great interest. And, and when that has great interest, uh, advertisers and, and brands that we work with have great interest in reaching those audiences. So we're seeing more interest in, in, in spending there and being against those audiences and creating content too, to speak to verticals, uh, that they have initiatives against. So again, we, we, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. How bright that light is, is to be determined, but, um, we're seeing good momentum. Finance is interesting. I feel like that one's been pretty downtrodden since the uh, SVB fallout. Is that, I guess, like, is it really back in, you know, a... It depends on how you're looking way? at that. So, yes, from a bank's perspective and from an offer's perspective, that has certainly been challenged. When you look at, and most of our audience are high-level professionals who are, are leveraging banks, banks for M&A and uh, more strategically, it's not as much from a consumer standpoint. Um, and so we're seeing those strategic dollars come back into the market because there is a better feeling on the, the recession concerns in the United States. Um, we're looking at interest rates changing around the world. I mean, today alone, Turkey raised their interest rates, which has a huge impact on monetary value in that country, which has ancillary effects elsewhere. Our audiences are directly interested in that. And so we have brand advertisers who want to reach those individuals with a sophisticated message. And so they're coming back to us and asking how we can help them do that. 
Got it. Got it. And another question I've been asking um, CROs from media companies the past week or so is really kind of whether or not there is an early-ish focus on 2024 already in kind of client conversations. Um, A couple, I think this will be two weeks ago now when this episode goes live, but the episode with Natalie Nymark from an ad agency, she was talking about having conversations with clients about 2024, starting in July, getting into some strategy planning, um, I think a little bit earlier than like this time last year. Um, And a few publishers kind of echoed the same sentiment. Curious if that's similar to what you're experiencing, if there is kind of this focus on you know, longer term planning more so than in 2022? Yeah, I would say that's the case, especially when you have um, a first half of the year that wasn't as um, impressive as the previous year, right? And so when when I talk about the opportunity in the second half, that opportunity typically also moves over into the first quarter and the second quarter of 2024. So those conversations are ongoing. And when I talk about the brands that we're working with now, Many of the campaigns that they're looking at, the the more sophisticated, broader campaigns, are not only for the remainder of 2023, but they also look into 2024. And so, without a doubt, we collectively are planning. Uh, It's that time of year also, you know, again, as a publicly traded company and as a company where we need to plan for for budgets for next year, not only in terms of what we're going to attain in terms of revenue, but the cost of running our business. We are certainly looking at next year and trying to assess where we're going to be versus the previous year and where we think we're going to end up this year. 2024 seems like a exciting year, especially um, if this kind of positive trajectory from the second half keeps up. Uh, but also there's a presidential election in the U.S., which um, is great for content, but also um, definitely has its impact on ad revenue as well. Um, but I wanted to get into that kind of political discussion too, because I have a lot of curiosities. But I I think the first question I have is how political ad dollars come into play. If it is a revenue stream that you factor in, if there is like a, you know, ban on political ads at all costs, like what the kind of approach is to political ad dollars and how they kind of influence spend in other categories. Yeah, it's a very good question and one that we're looking at very closely right now and assessing what we're going to be comfortable with in terms of the type of messaging that could be contextually aligned, right, with Reuters content. Um, historically speaking, we are, we are, um, we filter that tremendously because Reuters in and of itself is nonpartisan. It is an objective news organization. Our trust principles are such that we demand that of our journalists. And that's what we've been known for for over 170 years. The elections, we get a tremendous amount of interest, a tremendous amount of traffic. Also, remember that we're not actually primarily a consumer-driven business. We're the source of content for every media company that you're likely speaking to. So they license our content, our election content, our images, right, our text, our video. Um, so it's critical for us from a content standpoint that we continue to develop that content, be first to do it, and make sure that we're delivering it in a completely objective way. We also have to make sure that the advertising or the messaging that's next to it on our platforms is also uh, seen that way, right? So we are not uh, going to allow strongly left or right-leaning type of messaging here. We are having dialogues with the biggest agencies that manage the dollars around elections. 
the way that we would take money for elections would have to be around, you know, go out and vote type of opportunities, right? Where um, it's productive, uh, it is direct sold. So our teams mm-hmm. would actually have to have a direct or programmatic guarantee type of deal. Um, it is not an open market programmatic type of a, an opportunity for us, and we will block it that way um, at all costs. So um, the, the answer is, is a little bit longer, but it is one where we are curating not only what shows up from a content standpoint on the site, but also what you're going to see in terms of the ads that are going to align with that content. Got it. Yeah. Very interesting approach, I think, and a smart approach as well. I think um, that kind of like go out and vote or, you know, more purpose very focused message. on the action. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very focused on the purpose. Um, curious though, like is, I guess, are you anticipating that there will be a lot of dollars kind of coming in this year in like a political standpoint? I mean, uh, we already it, had the first like debate going on, right? So this is a probably very current conversation to have. No, I, I had lunch. Yeah. I had lunch with a client and a friend from Fox today. So that was certainly a topic, right? And um, the way that we surround that type of content will be very different. Um, but do we think that there's going to be a significant amount of revenue? I would say not for Reuters per se around that from an advertising standpoint. Um, there is a significant amount of opportunity for us because of the content we're creating, distributing uh, in our license business and our what we call our agency business, news agency business. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't say that there's going to be a huge amount of lift because of uh, the elections. I will tell you, there is an ancillary value to us because a lot of our users will come into the site and they will surround themselves with election coverage for which we'll, we can't monetize necessarily uh, via ads from, from the different sides of the election. But what we can do is redirect them and it creates discovery. So it's very important for us. to. It's a funnel at the end of the day. We want to bring people into the Reuters environment and we want them to discover content that, that relates to that. So we, we reach professionals. So if there's a topic around a debate or around the elections in general, that may have an impact on a lawyer. That may have an impact on an accountant. That may have an impact on some somebody who's focused on ESG or sustainability. We're going to report about that as well. And frankly, we will monetize them in those parts of the site, right? And so we'll be able to align with that because that type of messaging and that type of content is specific to a professional. And that's where brands will want to be. And it's not going to be a question of blocking them and certainly won't be seen as, as partisan one way or another. And so with this influx of political advertising, what does that do to other ad categories? Does it have a, you know, large impact on brands who don't want to show up next to political coverage or, you know, maybe there's in general less inventory. So marketing spend on other categories is down a little bit. Like what's the impact on the larger ad market? Uh, well, I can, I'll speak for Reuters and the, the impact is not a negative one. Again, if we're bringing audience and larger audiences into our environment, um, we will be able to monetize them direct depending on where we're placing that content and what that content may be. Um, if that's not content that's going to be blocked, we will use an open market programmatic approach, not necessarily election messaging, right? But um, we're going to try and leverage the fact that we have those audiences in our environment and we're going to direct them and, and create discovery where they're going to go elsewhere. So the monetization opportunity is there. I'm not concerned about whether or not that's going to put an impact uh, on, on demand or whether it's going to put an impact on um, the amount of inventory that we have to leverage. I will tell you, 
On other sites, it will have an impact, right? So I just met, we met, I briefly mentioned Fox, who's a client both in our news agency uh, and we, we, we work with them, but their business is very different digitally where that content will be surrounded by election uh, monetization uh, and different messaging. And so that will have a significant impact on other news sites, depending on how, what they're and how they're comfortable monetizing that content, right? And what they're comfortable placing on there. But without a doubt, and you know this as well as I do, there will be a tremendous amount of money flowing. It's a matter of where that money goes, and it's a matter of who can capture those dollars and how appropriate those dollars are for the given brand that is capturing them. Somewhat adjacent to this, but uh, maybe more of a conversation around, um, you mentioned AI, and I think in general, the misinformation, fake news, like excitement that happened the past um, couple of elections. I'm curious, like the role of this election, we're seeing some of the same faces come up again. And maybe this is more of like a, a personal, like, guesstimation of what could happen. But the role of AI showing up in media, I feel like could have interesting effects on people's confidence in media. And I know that AI is show is being used in some very like important ways, um, not just not like necessarily on the in the newsroom, but like outside of that as well. What's the role of AI when it comes to how Reuters is approaching news and keeping in mind the concern around misinformation and people's confidence in news sites, specifically during an election season? I'm curious, like, if those two things are, are being thought of in the same way as AI kind of comes into the mix. Yeah, no, there's, there's, listen, there's a lot of concern around AI, right, without a doubt. I think, and I know from a Reuters perspective, we're looking at it from a positive standpoint in terms of our ability to do what we do better, to do what we do faster, to have additional discovery, to be able to leverage translation and transcription. There are different functions that AI will allow us to accelerate and do so in our business in a way that furthers our purpose, right? And that that is critical to us when we're looking at it that way. And we're investing heavily in terms of our ability to do that. We're also keenly aware, aware of IP enforcement, right? So when you talk about AI and the scraping that's necessary in order to train those models, um, we're in the business of licensing content, right? So those who license that content have to have a contract with us. There's usage. There's all kinds of guidelines that come with that. When you're scraping content and using that content and using it in a way that doesn't align with that, that, that is a, a big problem for us and something that uh, we're looking at and you're hearing other news organizations look at, right, in terms of how those models are being fed, what where they're getting that information from and how that can benefit um, specifically a news organization, right? Because I mentioned we have 2,500 editors. We're producing three and a half million stories a year. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of resource that's going into this. Um, and the idea that content get, can be created and do, done so in a manner that is not factual. However, the basis of some of that or some of the ingredients of that content can be coming from a Reuters or another news organization that the foundation of which is trust principles and objectivity and fact-based journalism, uh, that's something that we have to pay a lot of attention to. We're also in the fact-checking business, right? So we actually have teams that are not only fact-checking our content, but we have our partners. When I travel around the world to different broadcasters, before a broadcaster uses a piece of content that comes over the wire, they want to make sure that Reuters has validated it. There's a reason why that's happening. You also have platforms 
the fangs, right? You talk about meta, the, we talk about the challenges that come with Google and others. In many cases, they look to us for fact-checking as well on those platforms. And so AI is yet another instance where it's an opportunity, but it's also a challenge, right? And one that we're keeping a very close eye on, and especially as a news organization that creates, we're one of the largest, if not the largest news organizations in the world, right? And so we're creating tremendous amounts of content, hundreds of thousands of video stories every year, over a million pictures and images. And as I mentioned, three and a half million different news stories. That is a lot of content. Uh, and we have to make sure that uh, it is being used in the manner for which it's being created. You raise an interesting point with the chatbots kind of scraping content off of publisher sites um, and using that to inform their AI devices. Is Reuters part of any of these kind of like publisher? Consortium? No. No. I, listen, we, yeah, we, we, we are close. We closely monitor and our, our, Legal teams, which are pretty extensive, certainly have conversations and and make sure that we we have certain alignments. At this point, we're not a part of the consortium. We have published guidelines for which uh, we're we're using AI, and also, like I mentioned, making sure that uh, we're monitoring against um, and and enforcing against infringement, and more importantly, scraping that's inappropriate and the usage of our content in ways for which is not approved. Um, so there, there are ongoing conversations. Um, whether we're a part of consortium in the future or not is not a decision that, nor, nor a comment that I can make right now. I think right, right now we're looking at what we create, how we create it, um, what's happening in the broader um, ecosystem for which we operate. And uh, we're going to continue to be quite vigilant when it comes to ensuring that um, we're enforcing against areas that need enforcement, and yet we're going to leverage the positive aspect of what AI brings to our business and those partners for which our business is predicated as well. I definitely want to get into the business applications of AI in a second. Also asking about like that fact-checking um, like responsibility that Reuters offers and, and how it is, you know, applied to partnerships. Curious how like getting into that misinformation, that like fake, you know, generative like images or video or, you know, content that's without a doubt, going to be circulating in mass during this political cycle. Is there, I guess, like efforts being made to detect AI in that capacity? Is that a challenge that's being posed on the Reuters fact-checking team? Because there's some convincing images that come out. and It's a challenge. Listen, at the end of the day, there are third parties, which we use now, in order to track the usage of our content, which may be outside of a contract or may infringe on uh, or, or be, maybe against, uh, you know, our IP rules that we've placed out there. Um, the use of AI is slightly different, right? So we have to, it's an ingredient. It can be very difficult. I'll use the analogy of baking a cake. It can be very difficult to source the flour and where that came from. And once you've baked the, that cake, however, that being said, um, it is certainly a focus for us. And we're looking as to what type of scraping is happening. There's technology that also allows us to, to see that and, and to block certain bots. And so we're looking at a number of different initiatives that we can take in order to prevent that from happening. And if it does happen, we're also looking to those partners that we have now that help us to de detect that uh, and go after uh, individuals who are, um, let's just say, infringing on, on the rights that, that we place on our IP. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. Let's switch over to that like business focus of how AI can be used to maybe like streamline some of those processes. I think one of the big um, topics 
that I was speaking with publishers about in the past year is this really compressed sales cycle, um, very fast turnarounds for brands, uh, campaigns. And I think one of the applications I've been hearing buzzes about, but haven't fully like reported out yet, which I will be doing. But one of the things I've heard is kind of how AI can be used to respond to RFPs at a faster pace or create like more efficiencies in uh, turnaround times to accommodate for those very fast timelines that advertisers are asking for right now. Um, Is that kind of the direction that you're looking at? Is there other kind of applications for AI or what's the What's the business side role that AI can play? Yeah, so what I was speaking to thus far is about the editorial side. So from a business standpoint, I've worked with a number of uh, organizations and third parties that will work in the CRM space, right? So many companies use a, a format of Salesforce or other CRM. And the question is, how can you sift through that content, that information that's in that system to create efficiency in your sales process? That's certainly something that I'm looking at and our team is looking at. In terms of the application itself, it's really early innings. Uh, and we really need to see the impact that these type of technologies will have on our efficiency. Right. And so when it comes to responding to RFPs, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I hate to make light of it, but many RFPs, there, there's a certain amount that you can fill in that's similar to, to previous RFPs. When it starts to get very bespoke and very specific, I mean, the human element is key to that and bringing in talent and human capital and intellectual capital is critical through that. Obviously, when you can use a chatbot or you can use something that is going to create discovery or speed in that process, we'll look to leverage that. But I I wouldn't say we have anything defined at this point in terms of how we're leveraging that on the business side. Our focus is primarily right now on the editorial side and the creation of content and the, the ability to discover content, which allows us to be faster and more accurate more quickly um, and creating more content, frankly, as a result of that. I'm sure this is something that's been written about or published somewhere, but those guidelines for Reuters in terms of like applying AI um, on the editorial side, I'm curious like where the lines are being drawn so far um, in terms of like, you know, needing to have human intervention to make sure that nothing is going out unchecked and things of that nature. But what's the kind of like overview of those guidelines? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you what I can from the business side. I don't want to speak for Ali, who's our editor in chief. And, um, you know, there, that there's, it's extensive. It's a multi-page document, right? But I think you hit uh, the nail on the head that we will always have human intervention. And if we're also going to let you know, right? So if there is AI leveraged in the, the creation of content, you as the end user, you as a customer, uh, you interacting, you'll know that we leverage technology in order to, to create or curate content specifically. And we think that transparency is really important from the get-go. Our view is not on replacing human capital with AI. Our view is on enhancing what human capital can do as a result of it. And so the guidelines that we've published and the guidelines that we're going to initially work against are really against the, the positive aspect, what it means from creating um, a more expedient process. We've been doing this for over 170 years, right? And so when you look at the scale which we do it, the number of countries which we do it, the number of languages in which we do it, um, creating a more expedient process and one that allows us to have that accuracy, objectivity, and the core basis in our ethos for how we're putting content out into the world with our customers, with our end users on .com, et cetera, our focus is on a positive way of doing that and creating 
whether it's translation, whether it's discovery, whatever that may be, um, how that can accelerate that for us. Got it. Maybe this is more of a like higher level question, but I am curious if advertisers are interested in how AI is applied to a media business right now, if they are asking questions about the role of artificial intelligence in the editorial side or even in the business side, like how much of a concern or how much weight that carries in client conversations at this point? Yeah, so it's actually less of a concern and they're looking to, uh, you know, Reuters has been a leader in the space when it comes to creation of content and the scale for which we do it. So when I'm traveling around the world, the question becomes, how can we help them in terms of leveraging AI? What are we doing that allows them to build a roadmap to leveraging different technology? Can we bring uh, that opportunity into the room from an editorial standpoint, because they're creating content with the basis and we talk about ingredients, they're using our source content to create their content. So what can we do in helping them from a technical standpoint to be faster, really to, to, to be first, right? Because in the news cycle, that's really important. Also, fact-checking, we talk about that, right? Making sure that the content they're getting, the content that's being generated is is uh, fully fact-checked and and authentic in terms of what's going out into reaching their end users. From a business standpoint, uh, we've heard about this before, and I I used to work in, I worked at AccuWeather, and I know weather.com did this as well. It's understanding and leveraging uh, the ability to to use data in order to target audiences, right? Also understanding messaging against those audiences, dynamic messaging where AI can help in terms of understanding clickstream, understanding how uh, an end user is, is engaging with content, whether it's within an ad unit or within some sort of a, an area for which they're engaging with content, whether it can be um, a survey, it could be any number of different ways of en- engagement uh, and leveraging um, that information in order to create first party data, leveraging that first party data in terms of targeting. And when you do that effectively, you're also getting a higher CPM. And we know what that means in terms of the effectiveness of advertising and monetization. So we're looking at a number of or myriad different ways of leveraging AI on the business side, but it's truly very dynamic now. And some some things work, some things are are have great potential, but I can't speak specifically into an initiative right now for which uh, is appropriate for this call. Got it. Um, awesome. And then switching gears a little bit more as we get into the end of this conversation, um, I you mentioned like. I guess maybe going back to the earlier part of this conversation around programmatic and CPM specifically, I think, was it the beginning of this year? I think like January had some of the lowest CPMs in the open marketplace since like the first months of COVID. I believe that that is changing and like maybe the summer showed a very different kind of trajectory. But I am curious about like getting into that um, like more revenue side of things, like how CPMs have been flowing if there's been uh, a marked increase in, for a news publisher, even in light of some of those brand safety conversations. Yeah, and that's been ongoing. I would say there's certainly seasonality. So we're going to see increased CPM in the second half of the year and specifically in Q4. Um, we have seen certainly a lift from year over year. So you're right. In the first half of this year, there was a year over year challenge in terms of CPM rates that we saw. Um we are seeing a rebound there. It goes back to what we talked about in terms of the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter. Uh, that certainly correlates into the value uh, that we're getting in terms of the oppressions we're delivering. Um, but that being said, uh, it is to, to be determined, but we do feel 
uh, optimistic that the second half of the year will be stronger. Um, and we look at every quarter on a year-over-year basis. And so we're hoping that we will see a year-over-year increase in Q4. What I have seen over my career, which I hate to talk about, it's been a long one, but uh, what I have seen when you typically have a soft part of the year, a softer first half, you will see, especially when enthusiasm grows or there's a, there's more confidence in the marketplace, you will see dollars flowing back in. And when that happens, you're also going to see, you know, demand affected by that. And, and you'll see a, and you talked about a finite number of impressions and being able to deliver impressions. Inevitably, you're going to have a, a higher CPM. And that is our hope. And we, we believe that we will see increased opportunity in the second half. Yeah, I think that's the general consensus I've heard so far in my conversations with media execs, especially because the less that, you know, recession is being tossed around, the more budgets seem to be a little bit firmer um, instead of this kind of pushing into the next quarter effect that's been happening. Um, I am curious, I mean, you mentioned H2 is looking pretty good. Um, a few publishers have referenced the fact that the number of campaigns closed for Q4 or RFP volume is still not as robust as they would expect, but there's been more asking about 2024. Almost like Q4 is being kind of like jumped over a little bit. And granted, these are publishers more on like the consumer lifestyle side, but it was a curious kind of trend I picked up is just this eagerness to get beyond 2023. I guess like in terms of volume and of inbounds or uh, campaigns around Q4, does it seem firmer just from I can that speak from, end? From a, yeah, I can speak from a pipeline standpoint. We are seeing more opportunity in the pipeline. Uh, like you're hearing, the question is, is that going to close? And what is the true opportunity in terms of budgets? Um, first and foremost is getting that RFP and, and recognizing that there's the potential. Um, working through that RFP and, and what the outcome is going to be, we don't know yet the number of partners or what that actual budget is going to look like from a holistic standpoint. We're working within the parameters for what we're given at this point. And right now, um, we're confident and we're seeing momentum in terms of brands coming back into the market or at least theoretically coming back with queries or RFPs in terms of the fourth quarter and going into 2024. What that's going to mean, I can't say that yet. I'm not, I've never been somebody who's going to say for sure where we're going to end up. But when we have a, a decent inbound and we have a decent pipeline, that typically will translate into decent opportunity. Got it. Awesome. Well, I think the last question I have to kind of round out this um, episode, I mean, what other things are top of mind for you operating in a news, a heavy news cycle that's constantly changing as a publisher that's, you know, just gone through a interesting ad market and macroeconomic um, situation? Lights coming towards the end of the tunnel. What else is, you know, top of mind for you? What else is exciting you about end of this year, next year, et cetera? Yeah, there, you, we talked about it. There's a lot going on. This is a tremendous time of change, right? And so while that can scare people and not know what's coming, actually, that's pretty exciting for myself. And I know it's very exciting for Reuters and Thomson Reuters as a whole. We're making tremendous investments. We want to understand our customers, which is really important. So we're spending a lot of time in market and, um, 
we're also in a, you know, you may have seen or not, we're, we're acquiring businesses. We're looking at different ways for which we can leverage AI and where we can organically and inorganically truly grow the business based on the feedback of our customers and constituents in terms of what they're looking for, where the market is going, uh, and how we can be ahead of that. And so I'm very excited because of the fact that we can speak progressively, that we're really getting in front of it, that we're having these conversations about AI, that we're talking about it in a way where how are we going to apply it as opposed to the theoretical? As you know, you've been in this business. I've been in this business a long time. There's a lot of buzz that sometimes comes around different topics. AI happens to be one of them. I'm excited to be at Reuters because we can really speak to the application. It's not just about the theoretical. And so we're making a lot of um, commitments in terms of how we're going to leverage that going forward, both financial uh, and also strategically in terms of how we want to move our businesses forward and how we want to support our customers. And so it's an exciting time. And yes, it, it, even during difficult times, it doesn't mean um, that you can't leverage that because I've always in my career re recognized when you have softness, you position yourself for when the market comes back and you're going to be a leader as a result of that. So I'm excited for what the second half is going to bring. And just like you said, there's a lot of folks out there who are speaking positively about 2024. I would get on that bus and ride it with all those folks as well. I think, you know, 2024 has a lot of opportunity and we plan to be, like I said, on that bus taking advantage of it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time. This was a really interesting and great conversation. And I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.